Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance and economics editor at The Economist. And this is Money Talks. Later in the program, the once all-pervasive and dominant tech giant Microsoft has been busy reinventing itself. If I work for Microsoft now, I have a new application. It doesn't have to run first on Windows, which was the case before. And fed up with your bank? European regulators may be about to help. Under the changes, banks will be obliged, provided the customer consents, to share transaction information with fintech companies. But to start, this week, after this podcast is recorded, Dutch voters go to the polls. The election has drawn unusual international attention because of the prominence of Geert Wilders, an anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim populist. But one interesting quirk of the Netherlands' electoral system is that a few weeks before the elections, a non-partisan government economic analysis unit produces an assessment of each party's tax and spending platforms, estimating their budgetary and economic impact. Then, of course, the parties start hitting each other over the head with results. The upside is a powerful fact-based consensus on some of the issues at stake. Matt Steingras is our Europe editor who's been following the election and he joins me now. Matt, does Herr Wilders play this game of submitting his tax and spending plans for analysis? No, he doesn't. He's one of the few parties that think that they have more to lose by letting their plans be analysed by a neutral analyst than by staying out of the game altogether. And is that partly because no one seriously expects him to form a, a government? Yes, it's vanishingly unlikely that he'll wind up as part of the government because all the other significant parties have vowed not to cooperate with him in a coalition. So what does this analysis show? Who comes out on top? It depends if you look at the middle or long term. One of the interesting things that developed in the debates was that things look quite good for the Socialist Party, which is on the far left of the political spectrum, if you only look at the short or medium term, because they spend a lot more money and hire a lot of people for the healthcare sector especially. But in the longer term, they come out much better for the liberals of the governing uh, party of Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Oh, why is it that the liberals come out so well in the long term? I think it's one of those classic situations where a more laissez-faire party tends to look better in the long term. They're more careful about the budget deficit. They don't raise the minimum wages as much as the, um, as the socialists do. But of course, those are all based on assumptions which the Analysis Bureau makes, which are also controversial in some quarters. Uh, one controversial assumption I see was was about the cuts to disability insurance. Yeah, there was this interesting back and forth uh, during the debates about who created more jobs. Um, the uh, I think in the short period, the socialists create 160,000 more jobs. Uh, in the long term, uh, Ruta accused the socialists of destroying 300-some thousand jobs. But that's based on the assumptions that the, that the Analysis Bureau makes, which are actually based on some old data from the 1980s on how uh, disability insurance affects employment. 
And uh, a Dutch journalist named Jesse Frederick took those analyses apart in an article a couple of weeks ago that was quite interesting. So his suggestion is that cutting disability insurance and pushing more people into work may not necessarily be a good thing. Right. And I think his suggestion is also simply that even though these analyses that are created by the Central Plan Bureau, as they call it in Dutch, are a very useful thing to come to a consensus about economic reality, you also have to look a bit skeptically on how those assumptions are made. The study that he called into question is a study by Jonathan Gruber, who's a very well-known American economist, but it's based on this one study in Canada in the 1980s. There's been a lot more recent data about how cutting disability insurance affects jobs. And of course, as you say, the, uh, the basic assumption that it's a wonderful thing to cut disability insurance because it forces people into work is not necessarily one that the voter is going to share. Stepping back a bit, Matt, I mean, how is the economy doing generally? I suppose internationally, with the attention given to the Wilders campaign and the rise of populism, the assumption is that for a lot of Dutch people, things are not getting better. But is the economy in, in a slump? Not at all. And that's been one of the interesting things about this election. The economy grew 2.1% last year. Unemployment is falling consistently. It's at a level which, while a bit high for the Netherlands, would be, let's, let's just say French or Spanish people, would be extremely happy if they had a Dutch rate of unemployment. And it almost feels as if the, uh, the popular anger hasn't really caught up with the economic situation yet. Things are getting better, but people are still in an angry populist mood. Matt Steinglass, Europe editor, thank you very much. Next, Microsoft's transformation. The once all-conquering tech giant has for the past few years been busy reinventing itself under a new CEO, Satya Nadella. So how are things going? I'm joined now by The Economist's technology editor, Ludwig Ziegler. Ludwig, PC users the world over think of Microsoft, and not always fondly, one has to say, as the company of Windows and the company of Office. Is that still what it is? Yes and no. So yes, uh, because a lot of the revenues and uh, in particular the profits still come from those two products, Windows and Office, uh, the package of productivity tools, we all know. But at the same time, it's the gestalt kind of what Microsoft did, what it wants to be, and its culture has changed significantly. And the best way to think about it now is that Microsoft is a big computing cloud, meaning a network of data centers connected together that do the number crunching and offer that as a service. And you can consume that. For example, there is now an online version of Office, Office 365. There's business applications online, but also this cloud produces intelligence, artificial intelligence services, all kinds of sorts. So Microsoft is a big cloud, and of that cloud, everything hangs off that cloud. It's kind of Windows has been replaced by the cloud. And how's the firm doing? I mean, this is a big transformation. Is it still doing very well? The firm is, uh, of course, still makes still makes a lot of money. I mean, it's not no longer as profitable as it was. It's growing slowly, but it, it's doing well. And it's especially how people see it. So before uh, Satya Nadella, then the new CEO took over in early 2014, they were seen as has-beens. Microsoft was a has-been company, kind of in, in decline. The uh, then CEO, Steve Ballmer, was not very popular, and that has changed completely. Now people see it as a company that has found its footing, that has a career and strategy, and what people tell me, analysts tell me, it's all about execution. You, you mentioned a, a culture change. I mean, how does that manifest itself when you visit the company? It used to be a, a famously rather intense experience. 
Yes, I mean, 10 years ago when I last visited Microsoft, uh, it was not a very pleasant experience because you, you got to talk to. So when you talked to one of the or interviewed one of the executives, they would talk very quickly and really rapidly and, 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 and kind of talked at you rather than listening to your questions and en engaging with you. I, again, visited Microsoft two or three weeks ago, and that is completely different. I mean, it's really, it, it, it's palpable, that change. People listen, uh, people patiently listen to the questions, even if they're ignorant, and, and try to answer them. And it's, it's, it's a much more open culture, I would say. And how much of that do you think is down to Satya Nadella? I mean, he certainly probably has a lower public profile than either Steve Balmo and certainly than, than Bill Gates. But is he personally responsible for this transformation? To a large extent, he is. I mean, he, he made, for him, cultural change was really, really important. And, and then he's, he's, he's a different person. He's an avid reader. He's not, I mean, Balmer was, was not an engineer. He was a salesperson in the end. Very, I wouldn't say aggressive, but out there. I mean, you remember some of you might have seen Balmer at some Microsoft events dancing on stage, uh, yelling, I love this company, I love this company. That's not what Nadella would do. He sits there and he listens very often. When, he, when you go to an event where he is, he sits there listening, what others have to say. It's all about learning. But what he has done is, uh, so, so as, as I said, Microsoft was all kind of all about Windows. So everybody had to always kind of, when, when they did things, think about what does that do to Windows? And Balmer and before him, Gates, the founder of the company, they uh, wanted everybody to do, to kind of endorse, support, make Windows greater. And, and that has gone away. So if, if I work for Microsoft now, I have a, a new application. It doesn't have to run first on Windows, which was the case before. And so, again, Windows has been replaced by the cloud, but it's a more open cloud. So the, the Microsoft's cloud now runs open source software before Balmer said famously, open source software or Linux is a cancer. Now Microsoft is using open source software. Before it wasn't possible, for example, for Office to run on a different operating system. Uh, now it's running on iOS and other mobile devices. So there's a, there's a real change in opening up. And Nadella knows that that's kind of the culture of the new world. That's the culture of the cloud. And no longer kind of this overprotective defending on the main, of the main franchise. And um, what does this mean for the broader industry as a whole? Is it, is it a good thing for computing? Yes, I mean, it's a good thing. For example, we, cloud computing. So the, 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 basically the only big player in town was Amazon. Now Amazon with Microsoft has, has a serious competitor. That said, Amazon is still, Amazon Web Services is still much bigger than, than Microsoft. But at least there is more competition. So it's, so it's good from, from that point of view. But I also think it's good from point of view that, that Nadella shows that these, these big technology platforms, these global technology platforms, they, they have to be run somewhat differently than that was the case perhaps 10, 20 years ago. You want to be open also to attract talent because talent is very mobile. They can move or hire or get a job with other big companies. So you have to have an open culture. And also as a company, you're no longer able to do everything yourself. So you, you need help from, from, from the outside. But also Nadella sees the political power these platforms have or the importance. I mean, they, they are quite an important economic force and will be more so in the future. If AI lives up to its promise, then it will replace a lot of jobs. So Nadella says we need to be a responsible and ethical company and, and have to pay attention to these things. He wants AI not to replace humans, but to augment humans, for instance. A kind of softer Microsoft. A kind of softer Microsoft. Ludwig Siegler, technology editor, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. Last week's Money Talks discussed General Motors' sale of its European car-making division to the French PSA Group. It prompted Jan Borachoff to get in touch via our email address, radioateconomist.com.
I think GM made the right call, but not for the reasons you might think. GM's an American champion that's currently being slaughtered by Toyota and Ford, even if it didn't notice yet. Toyota is without question superior to both in efficiency and price. So what can a competitor do? They can either be better with R&D or go for the protectionist vibe. American history and GM's current move might suggest the answer. Chevrolets, even with their aggressive advertisements, are no Toyota or Volkswagen. And while Impalas and Cadillacs are pretty cool, their market is limited. Therefore, the easiest territory to bite off is Ford's. I assume two more GM factories in the US will close in 2017 and the continuation of the decline of the American motor industry in the coming years. If you have any thoughts on what you hear on Money Talks, do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or, like Yam, you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, most of us get fed up with our banks at least some of the time. But despite poor service, moving a bank account seems too much hassle. And for all the excitement around financial technology, fintech, startups, their products often don't seem all that relevant to many of us. Well, help is at hand from, of all places, Europe's banking regulators, with new rules known mysteriously as PSD2. I'm joined now by our correspondent, Rachna Shanbog, who's been looking into this. Rachna, what is PSD2? It's not the catchiest of titles, Simon. PSD2 stands for Payment Services Directive 2. It is an update to European payments regulation. And the aim of the, of the regulators is to, to level the playing field and, and allow fintech companies um, a greater chance of accessing customer data. Under the changes, banks will be obliged, provided the customer consents, to share transaction information with fintech companies. What sorts of services might this open up? I think this would open up two different kinds of services. On the one hand, um, it will make the job of online payments companies much easier. They will be able to access customers' bank accounts without having to contact or request that banks give them access. The other kind of service that will receive a boost from the payments regulation, those sorts of services that rely on analysing lots of customer data to provide perhaps budgeting advice or advice on what sort of savings accounts or mortgage providers you should be choosing. Looking at those one by one, I mean, mm-hmm. to take the payment services, so this would be like um, sort of one-click shopping that you see on some websites already. Yes, that's right. Companies like, for example, a Swedish startup, Klarna, will find it much easier to access um, customer account details and they don't have to constantly request banks for permission to access those details. But aren't there worries about the security of all of this and, and worries about privacy and giving up the, the sort, second sorts of things you said about all that data, about do we really want to know our banks to know that we're drinking too much? That's, that's absolutely right. I think there are legitimate concerns about security. Perhaps the banks use it as a convenient excuse as well to block competition. In my view, the, the rules are sort of are strong enough to ensure that newcomers look after people's sensitive um, data. They will be regulated and have to convince regulators that their data protection systems are robust. And on top of that, they will also have to take out insurance and insurers will have an interest in cybersecurity. So it will be completely risk-free for the customer? I think it might well be less risky than at the moment. 
the rules around certain payments will be tightened up. Customers might have to enter two pieces of secret information rather than just one password. At the most, customers will have to pay 50 euros in the case of fraud. That's actually less than the current maximum, which in Britain is 50 pounds and in other European countries is 150 euros. And is Europe on its own in introducing this sort of regulation? What's happening about this kind of thing in the, in the US and other countries? I think it's fair to say that Europe is um, blazing a trail here. US regulators and Japanese regulators are watching and waiting to see what happens with PSD2. But they're still quite a way away from introducing something like this. And in the US in particular, the banking lobby is trying to make sure that these changes don't happen. And how far are we away from this in Europe? The changes are due to be implemented at the national level on the 1st of January 2018. And between now and then, the final guidelines will be negotiated over and and finalised. And is there a risk that anything could go wrong in that period? I think both incumbents, that is the banks and fintech companies, are worried that the rules might be watered down. From the bank's point of view, they want to ensure that security measures uh, are as robust as possible. And from the fintech point of view, they want to make sure that banks don't try and put up walls so that it's harder for fintechs to, to access information than the regulation intends. Russian Schenberg, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. 